you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now on Fast, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy meeting with Taiwan's president of the Reagan Library. This is other members of Congress meet with entertainment and tech execs to talk about U.S.-China relations. We'll break down what kind of blowback could be coming from Beijing. Plus, one of our traders is all charged up about a name we rarely mention on the desk. Maybe we've never mentioned, in fact. We'll find out what it is and why he thinks this stock could power higher, even as it sits close to all-time highs. And later, inside the cost cuts at FedEx, Tesla's rough three-day slide and stunted growth in some of the tech names. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Julie Beal, and Guy Adami. And we start off with the three big omens in the market right now. First, there is gold, the seminal safety trade. Prices touching their highest level since March of last year in early trade as fears of a recession grow. Gold miners at their highest since May. And then there's rates dropping across the board with the yield in the 10-year at its lowest level since September. The spread against a three-month T-bill as wide as it's been in at least 40 years. And finally, banks continuing their slide lower. The KRE Regional Bank ETF taking out its lowest close of the year and now at levels not seen since November 2020. So what are all these moves telling us about the strength of the market and the economy? Dan. Well, the strength of the market, the stock market, it really just defies everything that you just laid out there when you're talking about 40-year levels at that sort of differential. And, you know, Jim Bianco was on last night. He was talking about the move index, right? So the volatility of um, the, the bond market here. And we uh, it, it's just notable that the spread between that and the stock market measured by the VIX. So the VIX is like pinned here at 19. And a day like today, when you see what you saw in the regional banks, you saw weakness across the board in the NASDAQ, you know, really underperformed. I mean, the S&P 500, and then there were dozens of stocks that were down 5, 6, 7, 8% or so. The sorts of stocks that actually should benefit when yields are coming in. And they were the ones that started getting killed when rates started going higher in late 2021. So to me, I think warning bells are screaming in silence right here. And for some reason, the equity market has not gotten the memo. Yeah, I mean, not just the moves in tech, but also industrials. Yeah. So many names just being taken, three, four I know, one of my absolute yeah. favorites, United Rentals, just absolutely getting annihilated on, you know, fears of the slowdown, any construction spending slowdown. I think, to me, it seems way overblown, but to be honest, I thought that, I mean, 30, 40 points ago or more. So, uh, I, I mean, I still like the name. I, I feel like the infrastructure bill is still really important to them. Their backlog of business is great. Their balance sheet is in great shape. Um, and uh, this is, I mean, it is a cyclical business. It does have a cyclical kind of P.E., um, but there's no mercy there. I mean, uh, you know, I feel like, you know. Uh, wallflower standing alone at the dance and everybody else is having a good time and there I am just, you know, drinking my URI drink. Um, but I, I don't know. I still like it. It seems overdone to me. It's, it's a lot of crosswinds about the what's happening in the economy, what's happening to rates, and then the giant bank question, which right. we're not going to have more clarity. We got that odd Western alliance. Right. We're going to release data, except we won't release anything about deposits 
until the market cries. And then we will release things about the deposits so the markets feel better. That was, that was re- insane. That was, re- I don't know what, what happened there, why they withheld the probably single most important mm-hmm. piece of data and then later came out with it. But um, that's going to be the, hopefully some clarity for us because the KRE is looking terrible. Right. So you have all of these sort of you know, patches out there and together it, it makes a quilt and, and you know, just sort of a, an irregularity that, that indicates trouble ahead. And yet you have the markets holding up and that's probably basically because Apple and Microsoft are 13% of the S&P 500. So how do you, how do you think about positioning yourself in this sort of environment? Well, I, I still think I don't want to go 100% defensive, right? I don't want to buy gold. I literally don't know anything about gold because I like things like cash flow. So I think all you have to be focused on are you know durable business models. I like things that are really nice and boring, like a Cooper Companies that sells contact lenses where you have secular growth that can still probably power you through a softer kind of recession. That's the type of business I would be more interested in right now than anything that's hyper cyclical or hyper defensive. Yeah, Guy? Contact lenses. I mean, I, you know, I wore contacts in high school, not that you care, and I was playing basketball outside, one of them fell out and that was it. I'd never wore them again. I'm like, and, I won't use the vernacular, glasses. but you can imagine. So how do you No, see? I had my eyes zapped. Oh. I had my eyes zapped years ago. I mean, that's probably right. more information than anybody <laughs> wants to hear at the top of the show. It is five minutes into the show. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, well, I mean, Julie brought back it to the up. markets. Well, when you mentioned when you mentioned at the top of the show, I mean, that's a pretty unholy troika there, as they say. And you talk about gold. Central banks bought gold to the tune of 1,137 tons last year, $70 billion. I think it's the most and record, uh, and gold demand in the entirety was like 4,170 tons, and that was up like 16% year over year. Central banks, and Rick Santelli is coming on, I hope he hears what I'm about to say, they're hedging their own ineptitude. And you know what? Good for them, because I think gold's got a lot left. And I'll say this, the market might be bullish of gold, and that's an homage to Dennis Gartman, but it's not long of gold. And I think once those uh, circuits kick in, once those uh, basically, levels kick in for the hedge funds. You can see another round of buying. So, gold going higher, yes. Banks trading miserably, absolutely. And bond yields out of control, something that this show's been talking about, not for the last week, Melms, but literally for the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, Bank of America had a really interesting note. It's mostly technical, but saying that gold against all the different currencies, euro and yen, as well as the U.S. dollar, um, hitting new levels, high levels. Gold against oil, gold against bonds, all these charts look positive for gold. I mean, you, like Julie, have never really gone into gold, never got gold, never no. bought gold. But in this environment, is it starting to look attractive? Well, I do, I do have uh, Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? So, and it directionally is sort of going the same way to the extent that people think, all right, well, the Fed is done and, you know, they're not going to be disciplined anymore. That's helped both stories. But also this, you know, all, all the, the bank thing hasn't hurt Bitcoin either, right. right? That's been helpful. So sticking with that, even though it's a really small position. Yeah, so gold, the GLD is the ETF that I look at that tracks it. And I guess there's a lot of other instruments that are kind of more tied to the physical and, and, and the like here. But I look at this thing and I say 2020, it had this spike just above 180 and then it came down really hard. And then in the start of last year, when we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine and we had a whole host of kind of macro issues that seemed, um, you know, like where there was not a whole heck of a lot of uncertainty, um, we saw a new back above 180 and here we are. We just went from 150 at the end of last year to where we are right now. I, I just think 
chasing it up here doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. If you just think about the last few years, where we've had all this volatility. And granted, it's been upward volatility. You know, in 2018, the GLD was at 110 or so, right? So we're uh, almost at 190. I, I just feel like if you're coming to the trade now, it's probably not going to do you a, a whole heck of a lot of good. I know Guy feels differently. I know friends of ours like Peter Bookfire who come on the show. But the, these are things that the, these are narratives that you should maybe always be exposed to 3% to gold. I think that's kind of the gold buggy sort of thing. I just have never subscribed to it. I just don't know what a 2 or 3% position holding it all the time is going to do for me as a hedge. All right. Well, despite gold basically finishing flat on the day, it is still up more than 11% this year. And chart master Carter Braxtonworth uh, sees more golden gains ahead. So, Carter, walk us through the charts. Sure. Um, I mean, one thing to note, look, there are three types of people when it comes to gold. You fall into one of three categories. There are people who never own it, never want to own it, never will own it. They're the opposite. People who will always own it, uh, will never let it go, gold bugs. And then there are people who want to own it from time to time, want to hedge. The latter two are fine. I mean, obviously, you don't want to have 80% of your net worth or burying this stuff in your lawn, but having a lifelong position in precious metals makes sense, and also using precious metals as a timing tool makes sense. But let's look at some charts and data and see what we can divine together. The first is just, this is, a, this is an inconvenient table for the first group, people who never want to own it, can't own it, won't own it. This is, well, inconvenient. Uh, gold in the S&P, or even money, going back to December 1996, they have returned the exact same. Uh, it's annualizing. Uh, you can see there at 6.8%. Now, the first response of the critic would say, well, what about total return? You just go to back 1997. Gold has done its job on a long-term basis. You can see the chart right here. There it is. Um, now, one could say one's more volatile, one's less volatile. Uh, they're even money for basically 22, 23 years, and with total return, about 20. So it's something to note for those who never want to talk about it or own it. Right now, that's important. This is the ratio chart, gold to the S&P. It's simply one divided by the other, and it depicts a relative strength line. This has been bottoming for the past two years. Gold has been outperforming equities as an asset class. Now, in terms of what's the potential, you see a long-term chart of gold here. The low, and this is the irony, of course, gold's down 200 ounce or thereabouts. It's in the year 2000. Cisco is worth more than any company in the world. And people love dot-com and they hate gold. We all know how the story ends. That's why it's a great story. Um, and then GDX. Uh, we think it uh, bottoms, has bottomed, and we're headed to around $42 a share. We closed at 34 and change today. So gold, uh, Carter, I know you're taking a look specifically at gold, but in terms of silver, do the charts look similar? I mean, we've seen a, a, the chart going higher as well. Sure. Silver is a very small affair relative to gold, uh, often called poor man's gold. That's sort of pejorative. But silver is fine if you want to own the SLV uh, that or um, individual equities. There are all sorts of ones that are uh, bottoming here, and we like it a lot. Carter, it's Karen. It's interesting when you say the S&P versus the versus gold is almost exactly the same. Do gold bugs get disappointed when you point that out? As I was surprised when you pointed that out. 
Uh, well, I don't know. Meaning, well, I know it's the it's the first group. People who never want to own it are sort of like, how can that be? I do all this work. I do all my DCF, and gold has kept up with the S and P since 1996. That annoys them. Uh, the gold bugs. I suppose that makes them feel quite proud. Oh, I was wondering if it annoyed them. See all this, you know, fiscal irresponsibility going nuts, and yet. Oh, I see. Well, yeah, maybe they think they should have had beaten the S and P. Who's to say? But it is remarkable. And so even forgetting with total return, gold and the S&P since basically early 1998 are even money. That's with dividends reinvested. That's wow. a shocking thing. That definitely surprised mm-hmm. me. Carter, thank you. Always bringing the charts. Carter yeah. Braxtonworth of Worth Charting. Guy Adami, um, what, do you, what do you make of that? I mean, in some ways you think, oh, well, then gold's a good bet. But then you're like, well, well then just... Keep it in the S&P 500. If it's even money, what makes the difference? Yeah, it's, it is interesting, though. I would, I would surmise that if you pulled 100 people in Times Square, nobody would have come up with the answer that Carter just gave in terms of the returns over that period of time. And listen, I get why people are reticent. And I understand what Dan is saying. But I'm telling you, if you think about what's going on globally with the moves we've seen in currencies and bonds and all the different things and all the gyrations with these central bankers, Gold's going to win to this, and it's on the verge of breaking out. And quickly about silver, since you brought it up, Melms, mm-hmm. gold's within a whisper of its all-time high. Silver's still about 50% below its all-time high. So silver's got some catching up to do, as they say. And the right way to play this, I believe, and I think Dan alluded to it, is through the PHYS, something that Danny Moses talks about. And we are right up against the level we last saw, I think, in the summer of 2011-ish. What did you- did you say P-H-Y-S? Oh, Sprott Physical Gold. Got it. That's right. what I said. Yeah. That's what right. I said. P-H-Y-S. <laughs> All right. Let's get to the drop in rates now and the signal that it's sending to the markets. Let's bring in Rick Santelli for more on this. Rick, the 10-year yield, what, lowest close in seven months? Yes, lowest yield close in seven months. And the two-year note is just right there, very close few base points away from the same thing. Let's start at the beginning. We all know all the data we've seen this week, and it hasn't been pretty. On Monday, what, you had ISM headline, a whisker above 46. That was the lowest level since May of 2020. Yesterday, jolts, I brought the number out at 10 o'clock Eastern. Under 10 million, worst levels since May of 21. This morning, we saw the uh, producer, excuse me, prices paid, for the service sector at the lowest level since July of 20. So let's look at the two-year. You can see that it looks like it came back towards the end. Nay, nay. Let's look at a two and ten on top of each other for two days. All maturities closed under yesterday's low yields. And if you look at twos and tens together on the September chart you were just referencing, you could clearly see they're all moving fairly together, highly correlated, and three months to tens, the real recession spread is at minus 153, the most inverted of my 40-year data bank. And what are central banks doing? I like your conversation about gold. I just have one little fly in the ointment. Well, Guy, I was in the pits in 1980. I think it was Jan or February in Chicago, which led in gold before COMEX, before we destroyed the contract in Chicago. And I remember trading around 840, 850 in the lead futures contracts. And if I do my math correctly, adjusted for inflation, the current price of gold is nowhere near where it should be. And I think that is the biggest thing to focus on. Yeah. Guy? 
You know how I feel about Rick Santelli. I mean, he's a Mount Rushmore of just badasses out there in terms of what he talks about. And he's, un, you know, he's unwavering in some of the things that he talks about, the same things I talk about, his dislike for central banks and all the stuff that they've done. And I'm with him. I mean, he's probably right. Gold should be significantly higher. Mm -hmm. And I would just submit, I think we're just a matter of time from seeing that, Rick. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I love gold, too, and I wish I could go back to the heyday of trading gold. I, I just don't see it. And if you look at the charts, it's hard to really get a GPS with inflation. It's a sterile commodity. It has negative carry. And with interest rates going up, you got to really be careful. And by the way, Fed fund futures, and I'm always nervous to even get into a discussion there, because basically it's just another T-bill contract that people think is magic, and it isn't. But right now, if you do look at it the way the CME advertises it with a percentage we don't even have the quarter point for the next meeting priced in yet all right rick always good to see you thank you rick santelli um julie what do you make because we've had an inversion we've had all the you know these sort of flashing warning signals about the recession for quite some time so why now is it just because all the other things around it, all the other data points are sort of moving in that direction I, you know, I think what was lacking was something akin to a financial crisis. And I think that's where you start to get the breaks in both consumer and business confidence. And that's where you get meaningful changes in the abilities for businesses to continue to spend, to continue to hire. You know, ISM continues to be very soft. The ADP numbers, I think, were kind of interesting in terms of construction being solid, but continued ISM weakness in the manufacturing sector, I think that starts to bleed out. And I think it's just a matter of time now where we start to, these warning signs start to really materialize. It's interesting, though, when you think about uh, ways to kind of express views in the market. So if you look at the SPY, that's ETF that tracks the S&P 500. We just talked about the VIX at 19. If you look at the implied volatility, the SPY, that's the price of options on a short-dated basis, they are equivalent to the price of options in the GLD. That is not something that you see too frequently. So the 30-day implied for both is about 17 or so. So after gold's had this big move, okay, if you were looking to express a bullish view, would you rather pay 17 vol for GLD or would you rather pay 17 vol for spy puts? And, and really, they're the same trade for all intents and purposes. So that's kind of the lens that I look at this through. And that's why I wouldn't be chasing gold here. I see what Carter sees in the charts. I see what Guy has mentioned on a long-term basis. And if a lot of this stuff is all going to come together at one time, when we've seen major dislocations on almost every other risk asset market that we track, except for equities, I get why you would want gold. I just think that just lean into the S&P right here. Coming up, FedEx delivering on its cost-cutting plans will break down its strategy to see if it'll help drive profits higher. But first, powering up Con Ed trading near all-time highs as investors flip the switch to safety. The surge in utilities and other defensive sectors when Fast Money returns. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, 
Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Con Ed heading to all-time highs today, jumping more than 2% as investors flock to the safety of the utilities trade. The stock is up nearly 31% in the past two years. Utilities are, in fact, the top-performing sector in the S&P today, with names like Evergy and Excel leading the way. So is a defensive trade for real? Guy, you brought up Con Ed. I don't think we may not have ever talked about this stock ever on this show, maybe once in the history of Fast yeah. Money. Well, people in the... People in the tri-state area, I'm sure, are not huge fans of the utility. But I will tell you, in terms of a stock, you talk about lower left, upper right since the mid-1980s. And, you know, we had that huge sell-off a few months ago. But this stock has come back like a champ. Argus just upgraded the stock. I think they have a $102 price target. And Con Edison just announced, I think a month or so ago, a billion-dollar accelerated stock repurchase plan. Now, it's not cheap, um, which is a bit of a concern. But I'll tell you something. There seems to be this flight in the form of safety and now in utilities. And when you start to see that understanding, a lot of it has to do with yields coming down. But I don't think that augurs particularly well for the broader market. So I do think Con Edison continues to go higher here. But I also think it's something to watch in the form of what's really happening below the surface. Karen mentions HYG all the time. That did not trade particularly well today. But on the flip side of that equation is watch the utilities, Melms. Yeah, you were just saying that it's starting to show cracks. Yeah. HYG, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of though, how you think about defensive, you go healthcare, more healthcare. Yes, mm-hmm. more healthcare, which actually today had a very good day, very good day across the board. Little rotation there, out of URI, everything out of URI into you <laughs> know all, Pfizer. They all went yeah. everywhere else. Pretty you weren't. Much. You know, it's interesting though when you talk about the defensives and you talk about staples, you talk about utilities, mm-hmm. you talk about healthcare. They're all down in the year, which I think is really interesting when you think about that, right? So it's kind of like the opposite trade of what we had in January. It was kind of the YOLO thing, get into all the crap that got the hardest right. hit last year. But so when you look at these sectors, and then all of a sudden, and this goes back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago in the last block, and you see the sort of interest in them on a day where you see a lot of stocks getting murdered, you see some stress in the financial sector, that sort of thing. It doesn't make me feel better about owning like the broad market right here, especially as we've been talking about what we've seen in small caps over the last couple of weeks, the underperformance there. So I don't know. I think it's really important. You, you were talking about a mosaic or a, a stitching yeah, or something yeah. like that, a pastiche, a pastiche or yeah. something. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, well, it's not. It's, yes. Thanks, guy. Yeah. It's, it's not a great looking quilt. It feels like it's got like it's That's kind of being held at like some really weak seams together. Yeah. Probably okay. the sort of sewing that you might do. I'm a very good oh, sewer, really? by the way. Okay, I'm extremely a precise stitching <laughs> on my part. <laughs> Coming up, FedEx driving higher today as it lays out a plan to cut costs and boost profits. But can the trade keep its momentum? We'll get you the details, break down the trade. Plus, U.S.-China tensions in focus. Why your next guest says things could go from bad to worse. The geopolitical risks for the market ahead. You're watching Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. 
And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Welcome back to Fast Money. FedEx shares ending the day higher if the company announced a 10% dividend hike. The delivery giant also saying it will combine almost all of its ground, air, and other operations by next year as part of a $4 billion cost savings plan. Um, a guy even watching this one, how does it look versus UPS? Well, it's cheap. I mean, Karen can speak to this. Mm-hmm. I think it probably trades a little less than 13 times next year's numbers. I mean, you probably, I think you have maybe 20% EPS growth, maybe a, a hair more. It's always traded at a discount because, quite frankly, I hope somebody from FedEx is watching. They haven't run their business particularly well. Now, they're, I think they have their arms around things now. This drive program, which you mentioned, $4 billion saving, goes right to the bottom line by 2025. And if you look at the last quarter, that was actually surprisingly good. So I understand that one quarter does not a trend make, but if they continue to operate the way they did the last quarter, this stock is just too cheap here at 13 times. So, yeah, I like, I like FedEx here. I think UPS is fine, but I think FedEx is finer. Um, Julie, what do you say? Is, is FedEx finer? Kids at home, don't use I that think, word finer. It's not a <laughs> you know, I think I think the big challenge for, for FedEx here is that they're trying to combine their express and their ground groups. And the thing is, is that they've been able to avoid unionization by strict categorization of these two groups, one under the Railway Labor Act, uh, the other under the National Labor Relations Act. And so the thing about that is if they are not able to maintain those, they're suddenly going to be under much more pressure for union organization. And so these $4 billion in savings will not happen if that happens. Karen, you made your choice I uh, did. a while ago. Um, so a while ago, they were priced very differently. That gap has closed a lot. I'm long UPS. I'm not long FedEx. Um, they're within, a, I don't know, one or two multiple, maybe two multiple points of P.E., and I mean, this the four billion dollars, I think, is doable when you think about their overall expense base of maybe about 80 billion. That's not that's not a gigantic amount. So um, to Julie's point, I mean, that's one thing that is weighed on UPS, which is their they do have a very large union, union yeah. right? Maybe the largest in the United States. I'm not sure. Um, beside the government, but they. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I feel more comfortable with the management there. I feel like they are looking for profitable, profitable business over more business. And so, and I like the multiples below market, um, sticking with UPS, bigger dividend as well. Yeah, just keep an eye on the IYT, that's the transport index. And, you know, obviously UPS and, and FedEx are in there. And it really just kind of seems a bit stuck here. And I think there's a lot of, like, as we talked about a lot of these different industries over the course of the show, it just seems like there's a lot of, of, of industries that are kind of very uncertain about what happens next. And it's really this debate that we've been having for, it feels like, six to nine months now about when's this recession going to come. It's like one of the most hotly um, anticipated recessions. And I guess the fear that I would have as we enter Q1 earnings and we start to get Q2 guidance is really how much visibility a lot of these companies have and how much, you know, yes, we've talked about the dollars round trip this move and we talked about rates coming in just recently or whatever, but these companies are also cutting capex, they're firing people, they're doing things in preparation for a more difficult environment. And when you think about this little mini banking crisis, and I just can't believe that it's going to be combined to a few weeks given all the extraordinary measures that, you know, the the regulators and the feds and everybody took here, that I just think that the the lack of clarity is going to be the thing that starts 
starts weighing on the stock. So keep an eye on transports, on some of these industrials, because I think they're going to be some of the first to really feel a slowdown. All right. Do not miss FedEx President and CEO Raj Subramanian exclusively on Mad Money. That is tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern, right here uh, on CNBC. Coming up, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy making some headlines after his meeting with the leader of Taiwan, why our next guest is terribly worried about U.S.-China tensions. The details next. And investors selling out of big tech in a big way, the names they are leaving and whether you should follow suit. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on the markets today. The S&P dropping a quarter of a percent as investors digested the latest ADP report. Private payroll growth coming in lower than expected. The Nasdaq getting hit hard down more than a percent while the Dow managed to eke out a gain of 80 points. It's fifth positive session in six. Shares of Costco heading lower after hours. The company reporting same store sales down 1.1 percent in the month of March. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy holding a key meeting with Taiwan's president today, and there is concern it will spark more outrage in China. Our own Eamon Javers has got the latest. Eamon. Hey there, Melissa. This was the highest ranking U.S. politician to meet with a leader of Taiwan on U.S. soil since 1979. Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen side by side with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California today. It's an enormously fraught session because the Chinese government says it objects to a high level U.S. political visit with a leader of a country the Chinese see as a breakaway state. The Taiwanese visit as a result is not an official state visit due to the ambiguous nature, uh, the intentionally ambiguous nature of U.S.-Taiwanese diplomatic relations. So this visit is simply being described as a transit by the president of the United States. Still, both leaders spoke of a commitment to each other and to democracy. The friendship between the people of Taiwan and America is a matter of profound importance to the free world. We once again find ourselves in a world where democracy is under threat and the urgency of keeping the beacon of freedom shining cannot be understated. The Chinese government says it sees this meeting as a provocation and has threatened to retaliate for it. Not clear what they might do there. But also today worth watching members of the new Congressional China Committee meeting with Bob Iger of Disney as well as top Hollywood producers, screenwriters and studio executives in California to discuss Chinese influence in that industry. Tomorrow that group is going to meet with Microsoft President Brad Smith and high-ranking executives from Google Parent Alphabet and Palantir as well as with venture capitalist Mark Andreessen and Vinod Kosa. On Friday, the Select China Committee members are also expected to meet with Tim Cook of Apple. A lot to talk about there because he himself just returned from a trip to China where he attended meetings of the government-organized group China Development Forum and posted pictures of himself touring an Apple store in Beijing, Melissa. So a lot going on in this bilateral relationship. There's a lot of meetings, uh, Amy, with a lot of very important people in, in industry here in the United States. What do you think that the end goal is to pressure these companies to let them know that there is danger to doing business in China? I mean, what is, what's the point? Well, I think with the, with the CEOs, I think the point from the China Commission is, first of all, they're trying to lay the groundwork for some of these CEOs to attend high-profile, maybe primetime hearings here in Washington, D.C. That's something that the CEOs might want to get a sense of where that's going before they commit to that because they don't want to be embarrassed in Washington over their relationships with the Chinese. <clears throat> but it might also be an opportunity for the committee members to hear from the CEOs their perspective of the pressure they're under uh, in terms of access to the Chinese market if they don't 
don't conform to some of the things that the Chinese government is saying. So I think it's a little bit of information gathering and trying to see if they can find a sweet spot here where the lawmakers and the CEOs can work together uh, without embarrassing each other is, uh, frankly, I think is, is the goal, at least on the CEO side. The politicians might want to gather some information and see what the hearings could look like. All right. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers. Um, a guy, we talked a long time about the risks to multinationals in terms of the China exposure. Is it is it coming to a head? Because the China risk has been there for a while. We've had Nancy, mm -hmm. you know, Nancy Pelosi go to Taiwan and, and relations weren't great then. And so the Taiwanese president comes here and meets with Kevin McCarthy. Uh, the same sorts of issues arise. Is it any worse now, do you think? I think so. And I'm not trying to be an alarmist, but to call it an in-transit meeting, not an official. I mean, that's comical. I mean, I don't I, if that's fooling anybody, then shame on that person that it fools. I mean, of course, it's an official meeting. And of course, the Chinese are going to be upset by it. And of course, they're going to do something to ratchet up the rhetoric. Now, thankfully, it hasn't manifested itself in anything significant yet. But it seems to be getting, you know, the rhetoric seems to be uh, continuing to be ratcheted up, not ratcheted down. And at some point, especially with the tick, all the things going on, one has to wonder what the Chinese will do in retaliation. And I've said it you know, numerous times, Karen has said it, Julie, I'm sure mm -hmm. said it, Dan has said it, you know, in the crosshairs of all this are, are U.S. multinationals, specifically Apple's, McDonald's, Starbucks, and those types of names. And if you think they're impervious to that, I would submit think again. All right. Our next guest warns the risk of a hot war between the U.S. and China is growing. Yale senior fellow Stephen Roach is a former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia. He also wrote the book Accidental Conflict, America, China and the Clash of False Narratives. Stephen, it's always great to get your take on all things China. Um, and I'm wondering how you would, you know, now you're a professor, how you would grade uh, the calculus that was done by Kevin McCarthy in meeting with the Taiwanese president at this moment in time. Well, Melissa, um, I, I think um, <clears throat> nothing happens by accident in Washington when it comes to China, and the same is true of um, uh, China with respect to the United States. Uh, McCarthy, like his predecessor, Nancy Pelosi, uh, there's no big secret as to what um, they're, they're, the message they're sending, as Guy just indicated. They're uh, offering support for Taiwanese uh, independence. They won't say that explicitly, but uh, that is uh, the not-so-subtle subtext. And for China, that is that is their red line. And they pushed back last August, and they will most assuredly push back after this meeting. It wasn't, you know, quite the same thing, but you know, it it, it clearly raises a real warning flag for them that. Uh, we're going to uh, keep, uh, you know, uh, putting our foot on their throat. Uh, I was in China last week. Um, I was at the same meeting that Tim Cook was at. And, you know, sure, he was saying positive things about <laughs> Apple's relations with uh, China because he wants to keep doing business with them in terms of selling products, but also in uh, offshoring uh, production to, to China at considerable saving to American uh, iPhone-addicted consumers. Uh, so he, he's walking a, a, you know, a fine line here. And then, you know, the select committee, we know where they're coming from. Uh, you know, they want to bash anyone and anything that has anything to do uh, with, with China. And they will uh, 
you know, drag these guys, all the multinationals you decided will probably be uh, brought in front of their committee and interrogated just the way uh, the TikTok uh, CEO was uh, harangued um, uh, last week in, in Washington. Uh, you know, McCarthy said after this meeting that he believes that there's a bipartisan position on the need to speed up arms deliveries to Taiwan. So, um, you know, the rhetoric is certainly there, and I don't think that there's any sort of hidden message as to what, what the intent is when it comes to Taiwan and China, Stephen. When it comes to the multinationals, you know, if you were in the position as you were before to advise these companies, what would you say in terms of, you know, whether or not they should be prepared that they have to pull their business out or in some way pare it back? Well, a lot, a lot of multinationals have made major commitments to China, and mm -hmm. they certainly don't want to pull out. But I think at the same time, Melissa, they're in, in their boardrooms, they're all talking about contingency plans, about hedging uh, their offshore production um, uh, away from China. Uh, Apple's already done that with um, uh, shifting some iPhone uh, assembly and production to Vietnam and uh, uh, India, a small amount. But uh, I think, you know, uh, all multinationals who have made such a massive commitment to China uh, want to uh, at least uh, begin to work hard on a plan B here. What is your guess on what the retaliation from China might be? You know, not only do we have this going, we have also, you know, the hearings on TikTok not that long ago. And so do you think that it would be a, a hit to U.S. companies in China, or would it be something more along the lines of, of a sort of like a, a defense, not a military, but maybe a cyber or something like that, as opposed to on industry? Well, look, last, last October, excuse me, last August, they uh, certainly had a major, uh, probably the, the single largest uh, PLA military exercise uh, in the Taiwan Straits um, uh, in years, if, if not ever. And you know, I, I think you can you can look for a, a similar uh, type of response, maybe not as extreme, maybe just as extreme. Uh, we don't know. They have moved uh, aircraft carriers, um, you know, in 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 the Taiwan Straits uh, close to the uh, to the island, and they they are reported to have other ships, significant um, uh, presence of ships in the area as well, and whether or not they. Uh, move them into the same type of um, uh, warning position. I, I, have, I have no idea. Right. Stephen, thank you. Nice to see you, Stephen you. Roach. Um, it's one thing to move away production out of the country, but you can't move your coffee store out of the country. Right. If that's what you do. You can't move. You know, it's like all these companies that sell into and, and depend on the Chinese consumer. And the thing is that the Chinese government doesn't necessarily have to take a hit. They can engineer a social media sort of campaign for there to be a, a strike on U.S. companies by the consumer. I mean, we've seen that before. Yeah, we've talked about it. I mean, when you think about Apple and where they sit as far as market share, they're, they're, you know, in the top five of smartphones. They're not one. They're not two. When you think about Tesla and EVs, it's the same sort of situation. And if there's some reason for, for some nationalistic fervor from a consumer standpoint, um, I think that's definitely going to be, you know, listen, when, when a guy like Stephen Roach, who we've all followed for so long and, and knows China, you know, 
know better than most of us know, the U.S. economy um, is, is sounding the way he is. I'd also make the point is like I'd be worried about the, the other visits that she has made that he made to the Kremlin not too long ago. He yeah. just brokered this deal between the Saudis and the Iranians. You know, when you think about that, there is this bipolar situation setting up. And when you talk about the potential for an economic war moving to a hot war, then you have to start thinking about the precedents that were set by U.S. multinationals when Russia invaded Ukraine, to your point. And that nationalistic consumer behavior is something that I think will be felt by our companies over here. All right, coming up, Tesla's market share going in reverse. So which EV makers are gaining ground here? We will drive into that trade later. But first, big tech stumbles. What is getting investors to rotate out of this trade? We'll bring you the details next. Much more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. An exodus from big tech today. Meta falling uh, more than a percent despite not one, but two big analyst upgrades. Fellow titans Apple and NVIDIA also feeling the heat. And it wasn't just the mega caps. Smaller names like Twilio, MongoDB, DoorDash, Airbnb, all sinking as the Nasdaq notches a three-day losing streak. I thought lower rates, Julie, is going to keep this trade alive because that's good for tech, I say sarcastically. Yeah, you know, it was kind of interesting watching tech in the first quarter with just an explosion of interest after they had been so beaten down last year. And now you're seeing a real reversion. And I think it's just a function of fundamentals, right? A lot of these businesses are just not as well positioned uh, as they could be in a softening consumer economy. And I think that's kind of important to keep in mind. You can't you can't forget the fundamentals, even though everyone would really like to. Yeah, Guy, just yesterday we were talking about NVIDIA and how a lot of people here on this desk uh, and guests have been saying to short it. Is is now the time? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Paul Sankey came on and gave the Sankey seal of approval. And he once again, <laughs> his timing was perfect. But just full disclosure, I mean, I thought it was the time probably $50 mm-hmm. ago. But it's come off from 280 I mean, if you start looking at the math and figuring out all right, what's a sort of a 50% retracement of the move we've seen over the last six or seven months, I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility to see this back into the low 200s. I mean, it is an expensive stock. They told a great story around their earnings, but I think people are starting to come to the conclusion, wait a second, in this environment, even NVIDIA has to slow down, and I think that's what we're seeing now. All right, well, options traders are betting the bottom might just be in for one growthy name in the space. Brian Sutland joins us with the action. Brian. Yeah, Twilio is kind of an interesting one today because the stock got hammered like all those stocks you just mentioned. But we did see, despite the excess put buying of five times average daily volume on the downside, we saw a big put seller trying to pick out a bottom here. That was the May 45 puts. They were sold at about $1.05 throughout the day in, in chunks here. 10,000 of those traded. The break even down there, 43.95. So quite a bit more to fall for those puts to pay off in the money. And I think that's why a trader was sort of selling some option premium although that is after earnings in May for them. so And we've had a couple of big swings for Twilio the last couple of earnings. So you've got to be a little careful selling option premium, but at least it tells you some indication. Maybe the bottom is somewhat near here for this kind of stock and for some of these other tech names that got hit hard today. All right, Brian, thanks. Brian Sutland for more Options Action. Be sure to tune into the next full show. That is not this Friday, but next Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up is Tesla's dominance fading in the EV race. A new report out today shows two major automakers are gaining ground and ceiling market share. We'll bring you the details and the trades when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Let's take another look at shares of Costco. Dan, after reporting a more than 1% drop in same-store sales, average transaction price down 6%. It's now down about 2.1% after hours. Guy? 
It's just worth bringing up quickly. I mean, what does it say about the consumer in an environment where Costco should be killing it? I would submit they're actually not doing well. E-commerce down 12.7%. U.S. comps down, I think, 1.5%. That's not good. Now, I'm sure that they will blame weather, and obviously there was a lot of weather over that period of time. But this is something you absolutely have to watch because if Costco's not winning in this environment, I think you really have to take a long, hard look at the uh, U.S. consumer that we've been talking so much about, Melms. All right. Well, even as the EV market is growing, Tesla's piece of it appears to be falling. A new report from Axios showing Tesla's share shrinking by 18 percentage points in the last year. A report from S&P Global Mobility says it could fall below 50 percent in the next couple of months. The biggest winner as Tesla loses ground, GM, overtaking Ford for the number two spot. It's Bolt sedan grabbing 10 percent of the market. Tesla down more than 3 percent today, down 10 percent this week. Karen. GM is winning. Well, winning, I don't, I don't know that I would call it winning, but I mean, they, they've got to get it together. So maybe they're starting slowly and we saw GM ahead of Ford, but, you know, they've got to scale massively, several hundred thousand cars a year. But once you said, who's winning if Tesla's losing, I thought you were going to say Dan. That is the beauty of actually the Tesla story. We know that they pushed adoption of EVs fairly dramatically, right? And so like now everybody is winning because the pie is that much bigger. So it makes sense that their market share um, is going to come in. What I think is really interesting, you just mentioned the Chevy Bolt. Okay, so that is this kind of mid to low end um, EV. Okay, and that's a, a, something that I think is going to appeal to the mass market. That's what Tesla always wanted to do. They wanted to start with the high end, the Model S, and then they wanted to move into this kind of mid to low-end thing. What's interesting, um, I took a couple things away from this survey. The Model S is down 75% registrations from January 2022. So that speaks to the higher end, the Germans, and, and, the, and some of these higher end Japanese really making inroads over there. So the battle is really going to be fought in this mid to low-end uh, range. And this is where Detroit does well. This is where the, the Koreans do well. This is where the Japanese do well. So to me, I just think it's not a foregone conclusion that Tesla's going to win this race from here on out. The, the competition is here. All right, up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Guy Dami. The way we've bounced off that 225 double bottom in Amgen is epic, Melms. Julie Beal. Uh, you know, Walmart today talked about the need to automate their supply chain, and I think there'll be more. Manhattan software helps you do that. Karen. Yes. HYG short, we touched on it briefly. I think there is room to run here. We haven't even seen credit really start to crack. Dan Nathan. Yeah, I think if her HYG goes down, I think yields uh, and the 10 year are going to continue to go down. I think you play it through the TLT long. All right, thanks for watching Fast. Stay back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.